It's Cardboard Time, episode number 73, and I'm your host, Arwen Kathke. On today's episode, we have an interview with Elizabeth Hargrave. Now, we did about 45 minutes together, and I wanted to make sure that I let this interview have the spotlight that it deserves. So, a little bit of a short upfront part of the episode today. And then we will get right into that interview. But we do have a couple things to talk about. First of which being the Shelf of Shame. Now, the Shelf of Shame did go up by 5 to 151. We were at 140 for maybe a month. And now we're back into the 150 territory, unfortunately. But that's how it goes. Hopefully, I will get some of these things played soon. We'll see. With PAX Unplugged coming up, I'll probably get into 140 territory and then get right back up into 150. So, uh, eight games that came into the library this week. Let's talk about them. First of all, Kickstarters, two came in, the first being Dead Reckoning, which was a huge 18-pound heavy box. I ordered this about Gen Con of last year, and I was really excited for it. I'm still very, very excited to play it. There is so much content that's with this game. Um, But, you know, kind of the big box appeal doesn't necessarily hit me as much anymore. So I'm going to be interested to see how this one hits with me. Hopefully it's well worth the investment We'll see. I really like the card crafting system. I do like that kind of cube tower type um, mechanic. So I'm very, very interested to see how this one performs. And the other Kickstarter that I got in, which was more of a pre-order, was Bigfoot Roll and Smash. This was by XYZ Games, a programming game that finally came out. It has a little bit of a toy factor to it. Uh, you know, I, I really did love the appeal of this. It wasn't that expensive, so I decided to pick it up. And the the dice are these little tires that you get to roll. So, yeah, I got kind of wheeled in with the uh, wheels, no pun intended, uh, with the tire dice and everything. Uh, so I'm, I'm interested to play this and I should be able to get this out, uh, pretty easily. I'm hoping, uh, with my gaming group. Now we get to the purchases and I did make some purchases. There was a flea market at recess. Uh, this is kind of a semi-annual or multi-time per year, uh, flea market that goes on at recess games in North Olmstead. And I did make some purchases, the first of which was Mind Management. Now, I have had this kind of on my mind for quite a while, uh, and I've been looking to pick it up. I wasn't quite sure, and for the price point of $15, I couldn't refuse. Uh, This was probably my bargain of the sale, and I was really glad to pick this up for 15 I was kind of, you know, humming and hawing over certain games, and then this one really kind of sparked buying some more stuff, um, but I've been looking at this one for a while. 
Demon Worker as well. I have heard some great things about this. This isn't a really, really well-known game, but it is worker placement uh, with cards. And I've heard some excellent, excellent things about it. So I decided to pick this one up for $10, as well as Under Falling Skies for $10. Uh, this is a solo game where you're assigning dice to different actions, trying to save your city. And I've had my eye on that one for a while as well. And then finally, Wavelength. I did get to play this during Americon. I really loved the way that it played. I love the uh, discussions that we had. It's a fun little party game. I felt like I needed to have a copy uh, in my collection, and that was only $10 as well, so I figured why not pick that one up too, just to have for when I have those gatherings. I did pick up a couple of new games, uh, the first one being Forever Home, uh, and I did pick this one up kind of for Charlie. Um, you know, Charlie's our dog, and he was a rescue, so it's it's kind of a soft spot in my heart that we have this game. I'm hoping that it's really good. I'd like to get some pictures with him and this game. Um, I've heard some good things about it, so we'll see. Again, I have kind of a soft spot for that kind of stuff, so I picked that one up as well as the expansion to Cascadia Landmarks. Uh, very, very excited to play this one. I think I am going on a cruise uh, at the end of December, and I think I'm going to bring this one to play with my mom while uh, we're on the cruise and I want to play the base game with her first and then put landmarks in with it. Uh, so as far as things that we played, continues to be a little bit light as far as my games go. Uh, but I did get Featherlight to the table. I will be reviewing that in a couple of episodes. Um, but I did get that to the table a couple of times solo. I did play Heat. I played that at 83 Brewing down in Akron, and what a phenomenal game that is. I will be picking that up at some point. So this is your short-form review of what I thought of Heat. Yeah, I, I need it in my collection. Uh, wonderful racing game, kind of reminiscent of Formula D in a way, um, but I love the card play, and I think the card play is a little bit more satisfying than just the randomness of the dice. Um, although I'll always have a spot in my collection for Formula D. Uh, really, really love what they did with Heat. I, I thought it was a fantastic game. And then finally, I got to play Boop with Allie. Uh, we did play that Halloween night, and we didn't play it with a ghost, but uh, we played the standard base game. Wasn't really for her. Uh, she loves the aesthetic of it, but it is a very thinky game. It's deceptively thinky. And um, I, I just love the aesthetic of it. I love the gameplay. Um, you know, just kind of that abstract tactical uh, gameplay, I think, is, is pretty, pretty cool. So let's get on to this announcement before we get into the interview. 
we will be streaming on November 18th at twitch.tv slash cardboard time. Uh, we will be streaming Toy Story, Obstacles, and Adventures. Now, I did make a TikTok video for this, kind of explaining my history with this game system. It was originally based on the Harry Potter deck builder, and this is kind of a reskinning of that. Uh, and I've heard that it's actually a little bit better as well. There were some things that were fixed, uh, but the op was so fantastic in providing me a copy of this to play on the stream uh, because we got about five games into the Harry Potter deck builder and then I transitioned and I didn't want to touch anything Harry Potter related again. So, uh, you know, that kind of left things unfinished. So I'm really excited to kind of finish things off and get to see the rest of the system and and what it uh, provides in that. So, um, you know, again, thanks to the op for providing that for us to stream. I will be playing with Ali. Uh, so if you want to tune in November 18th, we're going to be starting off about noon and playing through a few scenarios of that. And then we'll be finishing it up at some other time. Uh, we have to feed Charlie or else he gets ornery. So I don't think we're going to get through the whole thing. Uh, but yeah, yeah, very, very excited to start up the uh, Twitch channel again. I will be trying to play some games on there a little bit more as I'm playing them and give you my immediate thoughts before I record. Thanks for the podcast. So things like Under Falling Skies, I think would be perfect for that. I think a little cozy stream of Coffee Roaster as well is in order for some little Sunday morning where we get together and just sit and drink coffee and chat and roast some coffee. So yeah, very, very excited for that. So well, stay tuned because coming up next, we have an interview with Elizabeth Hargrave. Well, today we have an interview that I never imagined that I would be doing when I started this podcast. My guest is a designer who just happened to start off her career designing a Kennerspiel des Jahres award-winning game and then proceeded to make games about flowers, butterflies, and has opened a lot of eyes to diversity and theme and other things in board games. Everyone, my guest today is the one, the only Elizabeth Hargrave. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for doing this. It is a honor to interview you today. Hello, what an introduction. So why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I live in Maryland in the D.C. suburbs and was trained as a health policy analyst and spent many years working for and adjacent to the federal government here in D.C., but have been playing games for a long, long time and at some point decided to try my hand at it. And here we are. So what what made you kind of make that leap from playing to designing games? 
really sort of dissatisfaction with the themes of the games that we were playing, like really loving them mechanically and then being like, why is everything about castles? Yep. Castles, <laughs> trading spices, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah I completely yeah. get that. Like, it's fine, but it's nothing I'm excited about. <laughs> uh, and so it's actually my spouse who was like, what, why... Like, could there be a game that was like these games that we like mechanically, but that was about something that we're actually excited about? And we were both getting into birding at the time. So that's where my brain went. Yeah. And nature is kind of a thing that pops up with you repeatedly throughout your game design history. The one thing doing a little bit of research on you, you spent some time in Belize in 2019 helping research scientists with shark and stingray populations. What was that like and what made you decide to do that? It was amazing. There's a nonprofit called Earthwatch that runs trips like this where they select scientists that sort of apply for this help. So they have research projects where they need a bunch of hands to help them out. And those hands don't necessarily be, need like specialized training. They just need people to come help. And Earthwatch will send them people. And then also those people, in addition to paying the normal cost of the trip for their room and board, part of what you're paying to Earthwatch is also a donation to that research project. So it's not cheap, but they're pretty awesome trips. And so, yeah, this was a group of scientists from Florida who have a long-standing project in Belize where they're tracking shark populations and ray populations, and they've actually succeeded in getting the, the Belizean government to create some pretty large marine reserves to protect the sharks, and they've been able to prove that it made a difference. So it was really fun to work with them. This all happened to be the week that Wingspan went live for pre-orders on the Stonewall oh, no. website. And we were literally like staying on an island with no internet access. <laughs> so it was pretty wild to come back and sort of see what had happened. I had scheduled the trip before Jamie had set the date really for the release. And then I was like, I mean, I don't really need to be there. You can go ahead and do it. Sure. <laughs> I, I guess I can just be off in Belize doing this thing yeah. and my game yeah. can be shipping to people. I, mean, I don't know. In a certain way, it was perfect because I couldn't be like checking it all the time obsessively right like I just was just yeah I knew there was nothing I could do so I could just let it go just hands off and that's it yeah. and yeah let's let's let it fly <laughs> are we gonna see any sort of games about sharks and stingrays in the future maybe maybe I've stayed in touch with the scientists that we were working with I went to go visit them when I was home in Florida this past winter and, and played a, a prototype with them and yeah, we'll see. Could happen. It's definitely something that people request. There are Wingspan fans, I would say. I get a lot of, you know, please do the next continent. And, and we have committed to doing all the continents. I get a lot of, please do extinct birds, Ooh. which that would be fun. I could see doing that. I probably want to do living birds first. Like I'll yeah. probably finish all the continents, but I could totally see doing extinct birds if I haven't completely burnt out on Wingspan yet. <laughs> And then we get quite a few requests for fish and sharks and like a marine version of wingspan. So interesting. Maybe, maybe someday. Very interesting. <laughs> so 
Let's go back to these kind of underrepresented themes, because I I think 2019 was a pivot point, not necessarily completely, but definitely an underrepresentation of those, you know, not castle, not trading in the Mediterranean, not dudes on a map trying to vie over different areas in Spain. What does it feel like to see now the proliferation of those themes, now that Wingspan is out, now that we're starting to see more of these themes, you know, from, I I think of Holi as one, you know, a festival oh, yeah. in India that's now represented as a great example of those themes kind of coming to life. You know, what does it feel like to see that? It's great because those are the games I want to play. I don't know how much credit Wingspan can take. I think some of the games that came out, especially like right after Wingspan that people were crediting Wingspan with, like people had to have been working on those. Right. Right. But so I think there's a little bit of a zeitgeist. I think a lot of people got very interested in nature during the pandemic because they were cooped up and going outside. So I think that also contributed to it. But I do think that... I might be able to take a little bit of credit in terms of showing publishers that there is a market for it. Cause I think, you know, publishers who have to publish, who have to like pay to print a game without knowing exactly how much of a market is for it. They, they can tend to be pretty conservative and like wanting to do like the tried and true, like we know castles will sell because people have bought games about castles in the past. Right. Like that feels safe. So yeah, if collectively all these nature-based games are sort of helping prove that there's a whole other set of themes out there, I think it's awesome. Yeah, I do too. I absolutely love to see it. I love to see a diversity in theme. And and we will talk about diversity in players as well yeah. in a little bit. But let's talk about a game that you have coming to stores later this year, The Fox Experiment. Can you tell me a little bit about what that's about? Yeah, so this is a real story that happened and is actually still ongoing. There was a geneticist in Russia who had a theory about how dogs might have originally become domesticated thousands of years ago and decided to test his theory by starting to breed foxes, which he had access to in Siberia. They were already, there was already a population of captive foxes there because Russia used to breed them for fur, um, which we uh, wave our hands at in the game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, mm-hmm. So in, the, the fundamental thing that I wanted to do in this game was to somehow have a way to make offspring and have them actually like become the parents for the next generation. So what we ended up doing is you're rolling dice and those decide the traits that are on your Fox puppies. And then you're writing on cards with dry erase markers and those cards become the parents for the next generation. And you do that for several generations through the game. I think that theme being tied in so well with the mechanics where you're passing that down, I, I find that incredibly clever. I find it very, very unique. And I haven't really seen anything like that on the market, which to me is someone who's played a ton of board games is something that I really appreciate because I want to play something different. I want to play something new with a little twist on it. Right. And it's a, I think it's a good example of 
how like going out of the norm in the story that I'm telling inspired a mechanic that's kind of out of the norm, right? If, if you're just doing games about trading in the Mediterranean, there are only so many ways to trade things, right? Yep. <laughs> Let's talk about the importance of getting that theme and mechanic linkage right for you, because we've seen that in your past games where you have a certain theme, you want the mechanics to be representative of that, and not just kind of thrown on top of it. How do you make sure that that linkage is actually happening and how important is it to you that that does happen? It is important to me. And for my personal process, I always start with the theme, the story I'm trying to tell, the sort of natural phenomenon in in, in my game so far, it's a natural phenomenon, but the, you know, the thing in the world that I think is cool that I want people to know about And I try to think about like, what is the core of that? So in a game about like breeding, it's the, you know, the passing the genes down and and showing multiple generations. And in Mariposas, which is about the migrating monarch butterflies, right? The core of that had to be pieces moving on a map. And the big design challenge was, okay, how do I create the, the scoring incentives in the game that cause people to move their pieces around in a way that looks like the migration of butterflies, that in the middle of the game, you have an incentive to have gotten your butterflies all spread out on the map and really far north. And at the end of the game, you're trying to rush them all back to Mexico, right? And so, yeah, I, I really try to think about it in that sense of the, like, what's the core, core mechanic that is linked to the thing I'm trying to show. And often when I start working on a game, it's because I've had an inspiration of those two things together. So it's rarely that I'm like, oh, I want to work on a game about X. What would that look like? It's like, that spark of the two together of like, I want to work on a game about butterflies and clearly it has to be movement on a map and all of that. So, yeah. And then I just keep coming back to it when, when there are questions in the design of like, should we do X or Y? Okay. Which one is telling the story better about what's actually happening in the real world and try and keep looping back to that. I think that's a super interesting process. And that was one thing that I was going to ask, you know, theme or mechanics first, because we always hear different opinions on that. There's there's a lot of people there like, oh, I've got this mechanic that I always start off with. But I personally love the theme first design because I think it does lend a little bit more towards that natural integration of, of the mechanics into the theme. Yeah, I like to think so. Although I'm sure, you know, if we did enough digging, we could figure out who had done mechanics first, but then like had an inspiration for what theme worked so well with that mechanic that it it just feels like a coherent whole as well. I'm sure it goes in both directions. Absolutely. So let's talk about another game that you have coming out. You are such a busy woman. Let's talk about Undergrove. What is Undergrove about? Because I see mushrooms. I see trees, foresty. I love that vibe. I've been saying for years I want to do this because I am actually a big mushroomer. I have been part of the Mushroom Club here in D.C. for almost 20 years, I think. Maybe more. (laughs) 
And so this is a game that is inspired, like the core thing that I'm trying to get across in this game is the fact that trees and mushrooms underground, their roots meet up and they actually trade resources underground. So that spark was like, wait, trading, clearly there's a game there. And And not in the Mediterranean. (laughs) (laughs) Trading underground in the forest. So you are building a shared board throughout the game and each tile in that board is an individual mushroom species. And you're playing from the point of view of a tree, trying to get your seedlings out in the world and established with good relationships with mushrooms. And so, yeah, you're, you're, photosynthesizing carbon is one of the actions in the game. You can get a bunch of carbon and then you can give that carbon to the tiles on the board and the tiles give you things back. Um, so that's cool. the sense of, that it's trading. It's it's kind of a cube conversion-y aspect to it. And there's a little bit of area control in the sense that like the places where you put your pieces can really matter and you can't, but you can't move them and you can't kick anyone else out because they're trees. They stay where they landed, but it, it can really matter which mushrooms you're connected to. So people will snatch up the good corners pretty quickly. So it's a little bit of area control in that sense. I think one of the other things that we see a lot in your games are, you know, either fun facts on cards when it comes to wingspan or a, a little bit of a paragraph about, you know, butterfly migration that you see in mariposas, things like that. I'm assuming that we're going to get to see some of that in Fox Experiment, Undergrove. I, I think that it is really cool that we can learn from board games. Have you seen anybody else that's doing that super well, that's kind of using a board game as a tool also for education? That's a good question. I should have thought harder about this ahead of time. <laughs> it wasn't on the pre-questions. I just saw this. So <laughs> I'm trying to think. I think Earth has little blurbs on the bottom of every card too, right? I haven't mm-hmm. l- like read them super closely to see how educational they are, but I assume that that was inspired by Wingspan and, and sort of going for that same vibe of like, here, we'll show you all these awesome things everywhere on the planet and you can learn a little bit about them and why we decided to include them in the game. That's probably the most direct parallel that I can think of, but I'm sure there's a lot of other people out there thinking about it. And I know there's a whole set of people really thinking about how to use games in the classroom and designing games much more directly for that. And you know, the whole line of games from genius games is probably the most hardcore example of that where they're, you know, teaching biology and chemistry through board games. Yeah, they do a really, really good job of that. I was always really impressed with their work. So we, we talked a little bit about diversity in theme. Let's talk a little bit about diversity as far as women's representation in gaming, because this is a subject that you're also very passionate about and something that we talk about quite a bit on this podcast. So first of all, I want to start off with your observation. You did a lot of research, a lot of background into the fact that the SDJ, the Spiel des Jahres, since 1999, five women, 103 men nominated. And the Dice Tower Award data 
are, are kind of indicative of a pipeline problem and not necessarily a problem with the awards themselves. You can give the, you have a certain pool that you have to choose from. And if that pipeline isn't supporting that pool and more women being involved in that pipeline and getting into that pool, the awards are kind of reflective of that. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think the way you said it is is exactly right. So a lot of times when I do this, and I, I think I've done it several years now when this Field of Shards nomination come out, because it's a it's a thing that gets a lot of attention, right? And so it's a it's an opportunity to just say, like, hey, remember, this is really messed up. But it, and I really don't think that there's bias on the part of the judges. I mean, there's a lot of research out there that in almost every field, there is bias on the part of the judges, but I don't think it's like a conscious, like we need to keep women out kind of bias. It's just like, um, there's probably a little bit of that. But like you said, you know, we don't have a great way to measure the gender identity of every person making every board game because that's labor intensive. Like board game geek doesn't keep that as a field when you make a record for a board game on board game geek. I think they rightly thought when they started and maybe even now that that was asking for more harassment than it was solving any data holes in the world. Yeah, so we don't have great data beyond those awards, except that Tanya Pobuda a few years ago did some amazing work where she did the top 400 games on Board Game Geek. And it's a very similar ratio. I think like 93% of the designers in the top 400 are white men. And then everybody else makes up the other 7%. And, you know, like Wingspan made a noticeable little nudge in that number because there are so few women designing games, so few people of color, you know. And then there are like individuals who make up a good chunk of that. So like Nikki Valens has multiple games. Eric Lang has multiple games. Inca Brand, probably the three of them are like a good chunk of that. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, we have a long way to go. I do think it's shifting. Like if you just go to game design events now compared to when I started in 2013, it feels noticeably different. And people have started organizing events within those events to help support designers from underrepresented groups. So I know there, you know, we've started having a breakfast for everyone who's not a white guy, I forget what we call it. <laughs> it's an awkward term, right? I'm just like, you basically like, you might walk into this room and feel really uncomfortable. So we want to introduce you to everyone else that's in that same boat. And I do think even that little thing of just like having a breakfast toward the beginning of an event can really help people feel less alone when they walk into the larger space. I know there is a bunch of discourse around the like BIPOC lounge at Gen Con, which I think has a similar intent behind it. I've just like, sometimes people just need to not feel overwhelmed by being the only one that they can see around them or whatever demographic they are and want to find people like them and get recharged a little bit and then go back into the larger world. So I think, 
initiatives like that make a difference as weird as it might sound to people who aren't having that experience. I remember I used an example once that really got through to people. So I used to go to this Zumba class at my gym, right? And it would be like 25 women, maybe on any given night. And every once in a while, a guy would show up. So it'd be 25 women and one guy. That guy would never come back. And I can only assume that he came to that class and was like, you know, and this was multiple different men over several years, right? But Mm -hmm. any individual guy never came back. And I can only assume that they showed up and went like, oh, this class isn't really meant for me because I'm the only guy here. And I think there are very few places in society where that is possible for a guy to have that experience, but maybe Zumba class is one of them. And maybe it's a very educational experience because that is an uncomfortable feeling to be the only person in the room who looks like you, who, who, for whatever reason, right? And so I think that analogy gets some people to get it sometimes, Um Feel free to steal my analogy. Yeah. Anyone listening that wants to explain like how weird that is to be so far in a minority that you're the only one in the room or, you know, one of 7% of people in a room. So, yeah, I forget where we were going with all of this, but that's part of my soapbox. It's just well, like we got to support each other. We got to make people not feel alone in that room. And we got it. And those of us who are coming need to keep coming back so that it's easier for the next person that wants to come. So it doesn't feel so alone. So that's a big part of it. And then I think there are things that publishers can be doing to be more proactive, again, to get more people in the space more quickly so that it doesn't feel as weird for the next generation of people that are coming along. Yeah. And I, I think you touched on a really, really good point here. And that's, you know, people in the industry that have started to help with networking. And I know from my experience coming in as a queer trans woman, you know, into the space where I was before a cis white man, where I was comfortable, no problems whatsoever. I could go to a convention city and roam around and be fine and go anywhere that I wanted. And now that isn't the case. I have a whole different set of issues. Having the ability to network early in my podcast and going and being provided with an opportunity to network with different publishers and say, this is Arwen. She does a Cardboard Time podcast. Why don't you talk to her for a few minutes? And you get that introduction. It makes you feel less afraid to go to people. And it builds that confidence layer by layer by layer by layer. When I started this podcast, I could never imagine going and reaching out to publishers, reaching out to designers for interviews. And now it's just like, yeah, okay. This is fine. This what is normal. Yeah. I'm I'm providing a service <laughs> and this is what I do. So I, I think having the ability to provide some of those connections, if you do have them and if you are able to provide them, I think is so incredibly important, along with mentorship. Having that mentorship is extremely important for both the board game hobby and just women in general really benefit from it. We've seen it a lot in professional workspaces where having a mentor just helps immensely with a career. And 
I think it's the exact same thing in the board game industry where somebody is able to go and provide you guidance and say, these are the things that you're doing really, really well. These are some connections I can make. These are the things that do you feel like you need to improve on? And I I think having that mentor and having somebody to bounce those ideas off of is great. And usually somebody out of that will go and then mentor somebody else, which just passes it on and passes it on. So I feel like that is so incredibly important to the industry. And I think you're seeing that as well. Definitely, definitely. And then backing up or sort of taking it down even another level to like what can everyday gamers do? I think thinking about who you're inviting to play games with you, where you play games, the way that you get people interested in design and in podcasts and doing things in the industry is all just by getting them to play games. And for years, people have made assumptions even about who's interested in playing games. Yeah. And so we have to break that down and we have to be thinking at that level about like, how can we bring more people in there? That's something we can get everybody involved in doing. And it's, it's hard in the United States because I think there's a lot of evidence that people really hang out in groups of people that are like themselves. So it can be hard to even know where to start. But, you know, within my own friend group, I often find that if we are in mixed gender couples with children, often it's the guy that stays behind to play the games while the mom goes and puts the kid to bed. Mm-hmm. Um And so, like, how can we even question that dynamic and how much could that do to bring women into the industry, right? Or into just gaming in general and the hobby. Um, like, what would it look like to schedule game night for two o'clock on a Saturday afternoon instead of eight o'clock on a Saturday night? Because then everyone can come. And so that's what we've started doing in my friend group. And it's chaos and the kids are running around. And in the summer, we just throw them out in the backyard and they go play. But They go play play, and then you go play. Do we play fewer games? Probably. But is it more equitable for who gets to play those games? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I I love that. And, you know, going back to your kind of misconception that, you know, board gaming is a man's hobby. I hear it all the time. I actually heard that one person said that to me. I won't say who, but it was very early on in my transition and somebody said, but you play board games, you know, that's a man's hobby. And I'm like, no, it's not <laughs> like there are so many women that are trying but to participate you, in this hobby. Clearly you can't be a woman because you do the thing <laughs> that men do. I, it, it's, <laughs> is, that, is that kind of where they were coming from? Yeah. Yeah. Why? That's exactly it. It's like, Why? Oh, you can't be a woman. No. Why do you play board games? <laughs> So I think one thing that I've also seen you do really well is have conversations with people online, you know, and, and one thing that you do is maintain a resource list through your website of women in the industry. And you also recently had a conversation with Ryan Dancy, who is the COO of AEG, And you had a back and forth, and this is getting back to the SDJ and some of the comments that he made. You have 
a game already published with AEG. You have another game that's coming out <laughs> with AEG, and you still stood up to them and said, no, this is something that is happening. Here is the evidence. It is very clear that this is happening, and we need to do better. And I think you were able to really use your social capital to sit there and say, you know, this is important. And I give you a lot of credit for going and standing up and saying that because there's a lot of people that want to say that kind of stuff and just can't. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't feel any risk in saying that to Ryan because I have a very good relationship with a lot of people at AEG who I know agree with me. And I think Ryan actually agrees with me and just kind of stuck his foot in his mouth too. Mm-hmm. But, but we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> He really stuck it in there. <laughs> yeah, yep. He he did say, give him a year and circle back. And I do have that yeah. right in my calendar. Because <laughs> so, nice. I'm interested. I would love yeah, to see he- him grow. And I think that's what ultimately we want is the opportunity for people to grow in the industry. Well, and the way that Mariposas originally got signed with AEG is that they actually went to the trouble of putting out a call for proposals from women designers. Like they were very aware of that hole in their catalog and wanted to do something about it. And, you know, and now they've got me and they've they've published a bunch of games with Molly Johnson and... um, One that's sitting on my table. I'm blanking on the name of the woman that's that's on. She did Medium and that old wallpaper she published with AEG. Oh, there's there's several of us in their catalog now. And Ryan was saying I haven't been pitched a lot of games by women or almost no games by women, which both of those things can be true, right? That the vast majority of pitches that he gets are from men and AEG has gone out of their way to find some women that they could publish and have good relationships with. So it's all true because there's so much room for growth. But yep. Daniel Deli, by the way. Thank you. Yep. Sorry, Danielle. <laughs> no, and and two games I really, really like as well. So Oh yeah, I love Medium. I haven't gotten a chance to play that old wallpaper yet. It's good. Like a yeah. lot of a lot of people dunked on it, but I feel like especially with an older generation, I was able to connect with my mom and, you know, she was just like, they made a game about this and (laughs) I remember this and I had a conversation with Nathan about it and it was, it was just like, yeah, I just felt like making a game about your old wallpaper and looking at it and looking around and my mom really loved it. She goes, I don't know who had the, foresight to design this, but it's really fun and I enjoyed it. And that's another great example of like diversity and theme brings in a diversity of people. So that's, you know, we didn't make that loop before, but talking about what can gamers do to diversify the pool of gamers, like diversify the games that you have that are going to interest different friends that you have. Um, And, you know, there's a game out there for everyone. And that's only becoming more and more true, both mechanically and thematically. Thematically, absolutely. So when it comes to the gender gap, you know, kind of summing this up, are are we anywhere close to being able to close it? I mean, I think we've seen progress, you know, especially since we've both been in the hobby. Do you feel like we're getting closer? Do you feel like we're close to closing it? Oh, I mean, the Spiel de Jars would have to be all women for the next 20 years to close that gap, right? 
Yeah. So no, we're not close to closing it, but it is getting better. Definitely, definitely getting better. <laughs> and then I love that there's a there's a quote from Ruth Bader Ginsburg about like how many women on the Supreme Court will be enough. And she's like, nine. You've had nine men for years. Yep. Nine yeah. Women. It's time. It's time. <laughs> I'm waiting for it. So do you also see parallels between women's representation in gaming and also racial and LGBTQ plus representation? Yes. And I think the latter are even farther behind in, in terms of how much um, we have to make up in terms of lost time. And But I do think they are also getting better. People are thinking harder about it. And you see games coming out now really clearly having put some thought into their cast of characters and hopefully that'll just continue. And, you know, it's a virtuous cycle as more diverse people make it into the industry than they make it into the positions that are doing the art direction and the review of the files or whatever, where they can say like, Hey, this is not okay. We need to do better here. And, and then when, when gamers see themselves represented in those games, then they'll get more involved and some percentage of those people will go on to get back into the industry. So, yeah. It, Design games or talk it takes about time them? And, or... And, yeah, and there's, I think there's a, there's a lag there between who becomes gamers and then 10 years later, those people are, some portion of those people are the ones that are, that are moving up into actually making decisions about making games or making decisions about which games get published and what they look like. So, yeah, because there's a lot of different aspects to this industry and a lot of different layers. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes a long time to make a game. Yes, it does. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's wild. Some of the stuff that I was seeing, you know, at proto spiels back in 2019 before I transitioned. Now it's like, Oh, yeah, I'm starting to see that like coming out. And so it's wild. You talked about being a fan of mushrooms. We're just going to pivot right off of this. And you talked about being a fan of mushrooms earlier. Let's talk about some of your other hobbies besides gaming. And I need to know what is your favorite type of mushroom? Oh, man, it depends on like, I don't know if I have an overarching favorite. I to eat I always say I like the oyster mushrooms the best which are a humble mushroom that you can find almost every month out of the year here in DC and most mushroomers do not get excited about them but I think they're delicious and amazing and I love them that much more because I cannot find them so frequently <laughs> like I like them better than the ones that everyone gets crazy about like the chanterelles and the morels um although we do find those here in DC too So I'm someone that came to mushrooms mostly from a foraging perspective, which is how a lot of people get into them. But there's a set of us who then sort of realize like, oh, but they're all cool. Mm -hmm. And I especially like all the colorful little things. And, you know, just there's mushrooms that are purple and that are bright red and bright orange and just beautiful. So... Yeah, out of, there's a there's a group of mushrooms called the wax caps. They're kind of shiny and small, but they're most of them are bright, hot colors. So like yellow, orange, red, um, and then just like they just pop in the forest floor. They're beautiful. It's amazing. Yeah, I I just love looking at them. I did not know that there's such a diversity to them, but there really, really is, and. 
what looks like you you kind of have to have a, a deep knowledge because what looks like something you could eat if it's a little bit off it's something that could probably kill you yeah i mean there's a lot of stuff in between that'll make you throw up but it won't kill you mm-hmm. but there are there are mushrooms that will kill you so it's good to learn those yeah. first get, get those first <laughs> Yeah, but there's a, there's sort of a set of beginner mushrooms that we think of as like, it's not too hard to learn them. You do still need to be really careful, but you can, there's a set of maybe 10 mushrooms that we sort of say, like, start here. You can learn these and eat them pretty safely without confusing them with something else. And you also do a blog called The Natural Capital. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Oh, I did. I haven't I really worked on it for years. I had lost the domain at one point when I was really busy on other <laughs> stuff. But yeah, I just used to blog about stuff here in the DC area and getting outside, even though we're in the city and stuff like that. So I had a lot of birds and mushrooms and plants. And my spouse is a used to be a, a landscape designer who specialized in native plants. So we kind of do a little bit of, of all the kingdoms here in our house. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's like getting outside and, and I find that like walking through the woods, if I know what birds are singing and I know what the plants are that I'm walking by and I see a mushroom and I know it, like it's, it's a totally different level of connection on that walk to like, to know what things are instead of just walking through undifferentiated green forest land, like, and it's, I find that just really rewarding. And nature truly is a beautiful thing. So what is on your table other than what you're designing right now? Yeah, I'm playtesting the, the solo mode for Undergrove right now. <laughs> nice. What have I played most recently? I'm trying to think. Oh, World's Fair 18, I'm going to get the year wrong, 69, 98, whatever year that was, is a delightful little game that I played last weekend. It's It's been years since it came out now. I don't remember yeah. what year that came out. Um, Not enough people talk about that game because yeah. it, it really is a delightful little game. See, and that's another one that's like a real world subject. It's not nature per se, but it's like, it's, I, I feel like my affinity is not so much specifically nature, but like nonfiction games, mm-hmm. like games about something cool in the world. The, the, the designer's like, this is cool. People should know about this. Another that's one I game. put in that category is Castell. Have you seen I have Castel? not played that yet. I've uh, seen it. Yeah. So it's about building human towers people climbing on each other's shoulders and and they will go i've seen this so it's a it's a thing that people do as a hobby in catalonia apparently it's very competitive and there are like troops that travel around competing to build the best towers they came to the smithsonian folklife festival a few years ago so we got to oh, see cool. them actually do this and it's like crazy high like not safe but they do it and apparently it is fairly safe people don't i don't know the kids that crawl all the way to the top wear little bicycle helmets. <laughs> In case they fall, they won't crack their skull open, I guess. But So anyway, it's a game about traveling around Catalonia, collecting up people for your troop, and then building the best human towers out of them. So they're little tiles that you're arranging. It's super thinky, like much heavier than you would expect from what I'm descri- from the theme. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's just delightful. I love. I need to check that out. Yeah. I I definitely need to get a play of that because, like you said, I just like that real world. Like, can I learn something from this? Can I, you know, understand something that I didn't know? I think that's such a cool aspect to the hobby now. Yeah. Yeah. So how can people follow you on socials? I have mostly tried to pivot to blue sky now. Same. Um, <laughs> and I am at Eliz Hargrave there, just like I was on Twitter. If you are a woman or a person of color, I can probably find you an access code if you hit me up, I guess, on Twitter, because that's the other way to really <laughs> message me. I do check over there periodically. Um, it's it's hard to completely break away yet because there's a lot going on. But I also have a website that's Eliz Hargrave. So like the first four letters of my name, E-L-I-Z Hargrave dot com. And that has a link to my Blue Sky. And also I have like a newsletter that I put out very infrequently. But when something's coming up, I'll put something out. Folks in the D.C. area can sign up there to play test with me. What else? Oh, I have a link to the form to recommend birds for wingspan because I realized that that was like a decent volume of emails that I get from and like messages that I get from people. (laughs) Why isn't this bird in wingspan? So Jamie Stegmeyer made a form and now you can officially request a bird for wingspan. And I I look at it when I start the next expansion. I'm like, Oh, clearly people care about this bird. They got five requests. So the point when those requests get so numerous that you have to have a form for it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and as you saw, I think I now have a form also for interview requests. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I did see that. Imagine that. Also, I will say there is nothing more satisfying than sending somebody a blue sky invite code over Twitter. It's, it's so magical. It's amazing. <laughs> it's true. And and the board game world really is sort of getting built up on Blue Sky. It's fun. Some real conversation happening now. It's it's a lovely community. And I also feel like I can just post differently. Like I can go in and I can just post about other stuff. And I don't have to be on all the time. Like I can just literally post about what I want. And yeah. Yeah. sprinkle board casual. games. And there's no ads yet. Yes. Hopefully it stays that way. <laughs> we'll see. I I can't imagine that it will be possible for it to stay ad free forever. Yeah, I know. We can dream though. We can dream. So Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time today. I hope everybody found this very insightful and can walk away with a few tips and trips about how to be a little bit more inclusive in the hobby. The Fox Experiment is coming to stores later this year, as well as Undergrove coming to Kickstarter. So Elizabeth, again, thank you so much for this time. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. And I think that'll do it for us today. I really hope you enjoyed that interview. It was so fun for me to be able to do that. And Elizabeth was such a wonderful guest. Uh, But if you have 
any questions, suggestions, or ideas for discussion topics, you can always email cardboardtime at gmail.com. Our website is at cardboardtime.com. Our Instagram and Twitter is at cardboard underscore time. I'm hardly on Twitter anymore. It is a dumpster fire. But I am on Blue Sky, and that is at Cardboard Time. You can always hit me up for a code to get an invite uh, over to Blue Sky. We have a wonderful community built up there of your favorite board game people, including myself. And our Discord, speaking of wonderful communities, uh, we are on the Tabletop Express server. You can always email us for an invite over to there as well. So as always, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you around the table again next week for another episode of Cardboard Time. <laughs>